We are now in uh, part seven of our Abiding in Christ series. Now, I want to start this morning just with a very simple story. So when I was probably five or six years old, my mom said to me and my older brother, who would have been about seven or eight at the time, he says, all right, guys, I'm going to town for groceries, and you can stay home today for the first time. It was, I know, six- and eight-year-olds staying home, maybe you think that's a little reckless, but it was the 80s. We just lived dangerously, so it was wonderful. So anyway, I'm six, my brother's about eight, and my mom said there's just one rule. Stay out of our bedroom. It's like, no problem. We can do that. So she leaves. Everything's good. We're just chilling, having a good time, playing Legos like all little boys should, right? But then, you know, we got a little bit restless. And I kind of thought, well, why would we have to stay out of her room anyway? Like, what's so bad about their room? So I just went and I stood at the threshold of their, of their room and I just, I just looked in. I didn't do anything. I just looked. And I just kind of leaned in. And looked a little bit more, saw what was around the corner. It's like, ah, oh, the forbidden land. This is amazing. And then I kind of looked to see if my brother was over my shoulder or not, and he wasn't. So I just ran into their room. I didn't even know what I needed in there. I just wanted to go because I was told that I didn't, I wasn't allowed to be in there. And as soon as that happened, my brother says, I see you, Jeff. You're in mom and dad's room, and I'm telling on you. It's like, oh no, this is not good. So I waited in just a cold sweat until I saw my mom's car coming back down the driveway and I was hiding in the closet in our living room and I was thinking, oh man, how do I handle this? Because I'm going to get in trouble, I'm going to get a spank, dad's going to come home, leather belt, oh boy, this is bad news. And as soon as, I, as soon as my mom gets in the door, before she even sets down her groceries, my brother, a little rat, whips into the kitchen... And he starts to tell on me. He starts, Mom, I have something to tell you. It's about Jeff, and it's about something he did that's really naughty. And I'm like, oh, yeah, here it comes. So I had to stop him. So I ran out of the closet in the living room, around the corner to the kitchen. I grabbed my brother's thumb, and I bent it back as, far, as hard as I could so he would start crying because I said, well, if he's crying, he won't be able to talk and rat me out. But I did that right in front of my mom. So two wrongs did not make a right. We didn't, we didn't make it out of there at all. This story is about obedience. How when, when someone gives you something to do, you should just obey it because things go well for you, right? But because I chose to disobey, my life spiraled out of control as a six-year-old. And that's kind of where we ended up. I want to share a verse here uh, real quick from Acts 13, verse 22. It says this, After removing Saul, God made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. When reading this verse about David, we quickly conclude that God is looking for a person after his own heart, which is true and wonderful. But God goes on to define what it means to be a person after his own heart. And he says here about David, he will do everything I want him to do. There it is. That's the definition of obedience. All throughout this series, we've been talking about how to connect with God and gain truth and direction from God's word, how to pray and hear God's voice. But without obedience, the time that we spend with God has very little lasting impact and value in our lives. Obedience is the way that we live out the truth of God that we receive from spending time with him. 
Joshua 1.8 is a great example of this receiving God's truth and then living God's truth rhythm of life that we're supposed to be in as Christians. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. That's the spending time. Why? So that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. So let's talk about the role of obedience as it pertains to how we abide with Christ. So let's, let's pray for a moment here. Lord, this is not a fleshly obedience that we're talking about here. This is not just about following rules. It has very little to do with that, actually. This is all about our relationship. When we're in relationship with someone and we love them, we gladly do the things that they're asking us to do. And the relationship that we have with you is no exception. God, I'm begging you, please, give us a desire to obey that is supernatural and powerful. Something that goes beyond what we are capable of because it comes from you and not from us. We ask for that desire to obey. And I pray that as we look at what obedience means in our life, you will open our eyes to see just how valuable it is to walk in your ways and do everything that you ask us to do. Amen. All right, so we're going to go through a few points today about obedience and just and the role that it plays in our lives as Christians. This is going to be simple and straightforward, not a lot of preamble here. Obedience in the Bible is, we're told that it is better than faith, okay? So in Luke 17, Jesus is instructing his disciples to offer forgiveness to a fellow Christian who sins against them and then repents, even if that happens seven times in one day. The disciples react to this teaching that God gives them or that Jesus gives them in Luke 17, 5 by saying, well, increase our faith. Jesus responds telling them that what they'd be capable of if they even had just a little bit of faith. But then Jesus goes on to explain through a parable, a key component to faith. And we'll look at that here in Luke 17, verse 7 to 10. When a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of sheep, Does his master say, come in and eat with me? No. He says, prepare my meal. Put on your apron and serve me while I eat. Then you can eat later. And does the master thank the servant for doing what he was told to do? Of course not. In the same way, you should, or you, when you obey me, you should say, we are unworthy, unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. So what's going on here in this passage? The disciples are upset about this hard teaching that Jesus has given them about radical forgiveness. So essentially, they say to Jesus, well, if you're going to ask us to forgive someone who sins against us repeatedly, then you're going to have to increase our faith because that kind of forgiveness is just too hard. Basically, they were lipping off. They were talking back to Jesus. By Jesus telling them this parable, he's telling his disciples, know that if It's not faith that you need to forgive. Don't ask me to increase your faith. That's not what you need. It's obedience that you need. The only response the disciples and us should offer to Jesus telling us to forgive or to do anything is, yes, sir. If we truly believe that Jesus is Lord, the master of our lives, and we are not 
the master of our own lives, we should not hesitate to obey when he gives us any, any instruction. Also in Luke 17 is the story of the 10 lepers. In this story, 10 lepers have cried out to Jesus, begging him to have mercy on them and heal them. Now, Jesus could have simply just given them a word and say, I am the son of man or I'm the son of God, be healed. Right? And it would have been fine and they would have been healed on the spot, bada bing, bada boom. But instead, he wanted to test their obedience. So instead of healing them on the spot, he tells them to go and show themselves to the priest. Which is what you do after you've been healed according to the Mosaic law. Now, it's unmistakable here what Jesus is doing. If, he, if, if the lepers went, they would be healed. If they obeyed, they would be healed. If they expected Jesus to heal them on the spot and said, no, I'm not willing to go until you heal me, they would not have obeyed. Thus, they would not have been healed. The obedience of these lepers to Christ's command is totally opposite from Jesus' own disciples' response to the command to forgive. Verse 14 says of the lepers, as they went or as they obeyed what Jesus told them to do, they were cleansed. They were healed. The obedience of these lepers is amazing. The disciples didn't even, didn't need more faith. They simply needed to obey what they already heard. They didn't say, well, I, I heard what you said, but, and it's, and it's really about the willingness to do it. It's not about their faith to do it. As we spend time with Jesus in our devotions, we need to obey what Jesus shows us. Obedience is better than faith alone because obedience is, helps us live out our faith. Second point this morning is obedience is better than sacrifice. Now sacrifice is, a, is an interesting word. In this story that I'm going to share with you from scripture, it'll make sense. But we could also say here that obedience is better in some cases than worship. Okay? So here's, here's what we're going to get into. The prophet Samuel was sent by God to King Saul with a very clear and specific command. We get this from 1 Samuel 15 verse 3. So this is Samuel saying this to King Saul. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Here's how King Saul responded to this directive from God. First, he immediately gathered his army and attacked Amalek. That's the country. And he killed everyone. Except... He spared the king of the Amalekites, okay? And second, he did the next thing that he was supposed to do. He slaughtered thousands of animals, just like it says in this verse. But he spared the best sheep and cattle so that he could give sacrifices to God. Now, here's God's reaction to King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, verse 11. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Saul obeyed God, but only partially. God sees partial obedience as disobedience. In fact, God calls disobedience rebellion later on in this chapter in verse 23. The next day, Samuel the prophet, he goes to talk to Saul after Saul's conquest. And when Saul sees Samuel coming, Saul says this, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. It's interesting that Saul seems sincere. And he had been about 99% obedient. He had done almost everything that God had asked him to do. 
So why does Saul feel that, that he obeyed God's instructions when clearly we can see that he fell short? Well, in James 1.22, it sheds light on this sort of attitude. It says in this verse, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Saul listened to God's word that was spoken to him through the prophet Samuel, but he didn't do it. He heard it, but he did what he thought was best instead of doing exactly what God had instructed him to do. We have to understand that listening to God's voice, listening to God's instructions that we glean from scripture is the first step. Obedience is what completes this picture. Saul made excuses for why he didn't kill all the Amalekites and why he didn't kill every animal. He even tried to convince Samuel of his good intentions for why he did these things. But Samuel struck at the heart of the matter when he responded in verse 22 saying, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of God? To obey is better than sacrifice. You see, Saul thought, well, hey, if I save some of these sheep and cattle, that would be an awesome sacrifice to God. But that's not what God asked. So in doing that, even with good intentions, he was disobedient. And that's why God says to obey, to do everything I ask you to do is better than your ideas of worship or sacrifice. Obedience is what I'm after. So what we, what we can get here, of course, is that God wants us to worship him. That's not the point of the story here. He wants us, when we get together as a church, to pray and to sing and to, and to carry on worship to him. However, according to the Lord, obedience is actually the highest form of worship there is. If we want to worship God with all of our hearts, it's not about singing louder It's not about raising our hands or feeling God's presence in a worship service, which are all wonderful things, by the way. And I hope that we experience those. But worship begins when we know what God wants us to do and we do it. That is the exciting moment. And you know where that happens the most? Outside the walls of this church. It's easy to come here and sit and listen to someone sing songs. And it's easy to sit and listen to some bearded man preach, but it is difficult but godly to go out into the world and do what God has told us to do. Point number three here is that obedience fulfills our love for God. A Pharisee in the New Testament asked Jesus which of the commandments in the law was the greatest. We've probably heard this story before. And Jesus replied in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. But what does it mean to love the Lord? Can we know that we actually love him? And Jesus answered that question for us by saying, yes, we can know that we actually love him. The answer comes in John 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love them and show them to myself. Whoever has my commands and keeps them. Another word for keeping God's commands is obeying them, right? What is it? um, Sorry. um, Our love for Jesus is fulfilled or authenticated through our obedience. 
We don't know if our love for God is authentic until the love that we have for him propels us to do things that are obedient to what God has instructed us to do. Now, that's a sobering thought, okay? Because many people think that loving God is, is becoming emotional before God during a personal or a Sunday morning worship time. Now, don't misunderstand me, okay? I, I believe in experiencing God emotionally. I mean, for Pete's sake, I, I, I experience him emotionally all the time, and you see me many Sundays getting emotional up here at, at the front. And we are to worship God with our heart and our soul. That's the emotional side of who we are. However, think about this. These emotional moments can only be considered authentic love for God if they are linked to a lifestyle of obedience. Imagine if Sunday after Sunday we all came here and we just, we just melted before God in worship and we, just, we poured out our hearts and we were getting teary-eyed and it was beautiful and all that stuff. And then we went out from this place and we lived a life that was completely separate from God. We didn't look in his word. We did not pray. We did not follow his instructions and we did not live a life that honored God. And then we came back the next week and got all emotional again. Would that emotion be authentic love for God? I don't know how it would be because our lives would be so hypocritical. Emotion is, is what, for me anyhow, emotion is what tells me that I've lived my best throughout this week. It wasn't perfect, but I did good, I think, and I honored God, and he met me in the times where I failed, and I turned back to him, and I confessed my sins, and I said, Lord, you know what, I'm trying here, and I'm screwing up, but look, you're giving me, you're giving me strength to do good over here, and I'm, I'm walking with him, and then I come to church, and I say, Lord, I saw you. I saw you this week because it wasn't easy, but you were there. See, I'm getting emotional right now because this is the week that I had. This was a difficult week, but God was with me. So then when I come here and I get emotional and I want to worship God, it's because I've been walking with him, doing the things that he's asked me to do. That's how any of us can tell if our love for God is authentic or not. God is the one who determines what love looks like. And he also determines our friendship. He says that our friendship with him is contingent on our obedience. John fifteen fourteen. Oh, sorry. Did I mess this up? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I, the next part, this goes right into it, uh, into the whole love thing. Obedience is how we experience God's friendship and intimate love for us. There we go. There it is. I skipped ahead. Not only is our love for God fulfilled through our obedience, but God reserves his intimate love and friendship for those who obey him. John 15 verse 10 says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. It's conditional though. Do you see the word if in this verse? That if is a massive word. If we keep God's commands, if we choose to be obedient if we choose his way above our way. That's how we will experience his love to the greatest measure we could possibly experience if we obey him. Notice also that, that friendship with God is also contingent on our obedience. John fifteen fourteen. Here we are. You are my friends if you do what I command. Many believers would say that they have friendship with God, but those same believers also willingly disobey him. 
They're not necessarily convicted in their spirit to live for God, but they would say, yeah, me and the guy upstairs, we're real good. That's the kind of, that's the kind of attitude or, or cavalier um, carelessness that they approach God with, thinking that, oh, as long as I believe that he exists, he's my friend. Well, the demons believe that God exists and he is not their friend. Obedient people, people who follow the will of God, they absolutely can know that God is their friend. And he says that it's dependent on obedience. I know we're banging this drum today, but this is an important thing for us to understand. So then, what does friendship with God mean? If he chooses to have friendship with us, what does friendship with God look like? Jesus answered that too in the next verse in John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. When you become a friend of God, it means that he confides in you. We've talked about this before. He actually shares information with you that he doesn't share with anybody. He reveals it to you because he sees that you have a heart for him, that you're trustworthy, that you long to obey him. And he knows that the information that he shares with you, the mysteries of your life and your church and the world around you are going to be in good hands because you desire to follow it through. We see that very thing with Abraham when he was called a friend of God in Second Chronicles 20 verse 7. And, and before God judged Sodom and Gomorrah with fire from heaven, he confided in Abraham about it in Genesis 18.7. Can you imagine if God came to you and says, yeah, you see those two towns over there? They are not going to last. Can you imagine if God trusted you with that sort of a secret? Like, hey, there's a country that's, that's all into idol worship, and I'm going to send a tsunami, and they're going to get wiped out. Imagine, what do you do with that? That's amazing that God would trust someone like that, but he saw the heart that Abraham had. And in Proverbs 3, verse 32, it says, For the Lord detests the perverse, but takes the upright into his confidence. The upright, the people who have a heart for God and will do everything that he says. He said, hey, come over here. I want you on my inner circle because I have something I want to share with you. Would you like to experience that kind of friendship with God? Man, I certainly would. And I think that we all can. It comes through obedience. Next point here is disobedience. Now we're going to flip on to the negative side here. Disobedience opens us up to demonic influence. Not trying to scare anyone. We're just looking at scripture here and trying to understand better about what the, what the value of obedience is in our lives. In 1 Samuel 15 verse 23, it says this, Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. Something interesting about this verse. Now, as the Bible has been translated uh, from the original languages to English and other languages over the years, sometimes there aren't words in our language that make sense. So the people who are transcribing the Bible, they'll, they'll kind of make things up so that the sentence works. Now, they're not trying, to, not trying to ruin scripture or anything, but the languages going one from another, it's not always a smooth transition. The phrase here in this verse, is as sinful as, is actually not what the original Hebrew intended. In the original language, this verse should read, for rebellion is witchcraft. It's not like witchcraft. Rebellion is witchcraft. Whoa. Okay. So now that I got your attention here, witchcraft, and when we think about it, 
it conjures up all sorts of images of witches dressed in black standing around a cauldron, magic spells and all that kind of thing, right? Don't, don't think about those pictures right now because that's not actually what we're going after. We're just talking about what the practice of witchcraft does. When people who are rebellious and enter into a life of rebellion, which they, they are like people who practice witchcraft, or this is a witchcraft practice. Witchcraft opens us up directly to the demonic realm. When this happens, demonic powers gain control over circumstances, over situations, over people, and often not even with the participants' understanding of what is happening in the spiritual realm all around them. In witchcraft, the participants are taught that the more they rebel, the more they give legal access to the demonic powers to influence and control them. Samuel warned Saul about his rebellion and, and that it was opening up or giving him or giving control to the demonic realm in his life. After, and scripture reveals that not long after Saul's rebellion in disobeying God about attacking the Amalekites, it says here that an evil, a tormenting spirit did indeed come into Saul's life to trouble him because it had been given legal access to do so through Saul's willful disobedience. In 1 Samuel 16, 14, it says exactly this. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, which is a terrifying thought all on its own. But next, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now, it's not like God is evil and he sends out evil spirits. That's not it at all. But when he sees someone who says that they don't want to obey him, I mean, his hands are tied. Will you open yourself up to these kind of influences in our lives when we choose not to obey God? It says here that Saul actually became a very different person from that point on. The evil spirit manipulated him into a, into a life of jealousy, anger, hatred, strife, murder, and deception. It controlled him through his unrepentant disobedience. At a time when David was his most loyal subject, he would come in and, and play his, heart, his harp to soothe Saul. Saul actually became unreasonably suspicious and jealous of David and tried to murder him, right? We hear the stories about King Saul throwing spears at David while he's playing his harp for him. There was no reason for that. But when demons begin to deceive us, just like they did with Saul due to disobedience, we move down a pathway that can lead us to even abandoning our faith altogether. And we see that. It's a progression we see we first refuse to obey God in just one thing. And if we do that continually, we are then deceived more and more. And we begin to ignore the voice of God more and more. And we can't hear it when the Holy Spirit says, hey, that's wrong. And we receive this conviction from our sins. That voice gets quieter and muffled. We then open ourselves up to demonic influence and we do things that we could never imagine we would have ever done. Nobody wakes up one day as a Christian and says, well, I think I'm going to throw it all away. It's not like that. It is a slow progression because Satan doesn't want you to see what you're doing. He wants us to be blind to it so that we just ignorantly take step after step after step away from our faith in Jesus Christ. At his lowest point, just before his death, Saul even consulted a witch. It, but instead of going to God for wisdom, he asked for a witch to come so that he could, he could visit with her and gain some understanding. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 to 2, it says, Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from true faith. 
They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars, and their consciences are dead. Now, this happened to Saul, and it happens to Christians today, too. No wonder Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. These were people who started off well. We're not talking about people who were born into awful families and had no chance at following God. We're talking about people who are Christians. People in our church who have maybe walked away and said, I'm not in. It doesn't matter if I obey God. It doesn't matter if I go to church. And soon they find themselves in the same position as Saul, simply because they chose to be disobedient. God also tests our obedience, which is a good thing. In God's eyes, it is important for us to learn to be obedient. And as a good parent, he's going to give us chances to be obedient. Therefore, he tests us. He tests our obedience as our lives are developing spiritually to see how we're going to respond. One of the classic obedience tests that we see in scripture is the testing of Abraham. It began with God's call for Abraham, which in this story, his name is just Abram at this point. It hadn't been changed yet. But God is calling him to follow him. In Genesis 12, verse 1, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. So three things Abraham was to do. Leave his country, leave his people, and leave his father's household. Did Abraham do this? Not exactly. He left his country and he left his people, but he did not leave his father's household. Two verses earlier, we see where this happened in Genesis 11, verse 31. One day, Terah, who is Abram's father, took his son, Abraham, Abram, his sister-in-law, Sarai, that was Abram's wife, and his grandson, Lot, his, which is Haran's child, we'll see that name, and moved away to, from Ur of the Chaldeans. He was headed for the land of Canaan, but they stopped in Haran and settled there. Now, evidently, Abraham's father, Terah, tagged along with Abraham, and, and they set out for Canaan together. However, they did not get to, Ca- to Canaan because they only made it to Haran, where they stopped and settled there. Abraham's father, Terah, eventually dies, and then Abram continues on to the land of Canaan. But did Abraham go alone as he was supposed to? No, he took along his nephew Lot. And if any of you know the story of Lot, you know that that was an absolute disaster. Abraham had placed his family ahead of God when God clearly told him not to. Family was an idol in Abraham's life. So it's no surprise that it would also be with family that the biggest test of Abraham's life would come. Genesis 22, verse 2. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. This time, Abraham passed the test. See, God's good. He gave Abraham another chance. Like, I'm going to give you a family test. You're putting your family before me. I mean, here's your test. You didn't pass that one. I'm going to give you another test. I'm going to give you another chance. And, and here he passes, even though he's asked to give up the son of promise, Isaac. It is, it is one thing to obey when the command is humanly logical, 
right? It's quite another when obedience calls for us to do something that in our minds just doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. But as we know, obedience always hinges, or doesn't always, sorry, hinge on our understanding. Obedience is the key step that determines our growth under God. So let me just wrap this up by saying this. This is just real, real short and sweet. As we continue to abide in Christ and grow in our daily devotions, we have to remind ourselves not to just be hearers of the word, but to also be doers. Only through hearing and obeying are we true followers of God. That's not me saying that. That's the Bible. If that sounds like a hard truth, it's a good truth. Because how would God be doing us any favors if he just said, store up a ton of knowledge about me, but live your life any way you want? That's not a good father. But a good father says, hey, here's my instructions. If you follow these things, there's going to be a lot of good that comes into your life. If we spend time hearing God's word, but we don't obey it, we are rebelling against God. If we don't even take time to know God's word through daily devotions and abiding in him, our chances of obedience are almost impossible. I'm going to pray. Leona, if you would want to come up and lead us into him, that would be great. Lord, I love this. It is not easy. It's actually something that is super convicting for me. But I know that your obedience is just a blessing. When you ask us to obey and follow your instructions, and then we do it with your strength that you provide for us, Lord, that's a marvelous thing. I pray that each and every one of us here would not leave this place until we are convinced that tomorrow we are going to obey and we are going to hear your word and do it. Give us that strength, Father God. Otherwise, we're just a mediocre church, and that's not what we exist to be. Amen.